Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the topics most impacting us. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about the world and how to challenge the narrative those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point. To learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. In today's episode, we explore more exciting topics. From a story about a man with a fake arm trying to get a COVID vaccine in Italy, we discuss what the end game for COVID-19 looks like and whether the people and organizations at the top of the world's hierarchies have a clear picture of the public health, economic, and financial landscape. We also explore our shifting paradigms. It's no longer left versus right or communist versus capitalist. Instead, the events surrounding COVID-19 are waking people up to a new way of looking at the world, and those entrenched in positions of power and influence want to prevent us from changing our perspective. Finally, we have an exciting discussion about the advantages and disadvantages of Bitcoin maximalism in terms of generalization versus specialization. This episode was an exciting ride where we started with a topic and saw where it takes us, so please sit back and enjoy it. As always, we want to build a community around Mentally Unscripted. Please share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. All right, we are live. Another episode of Mentally Unscripted. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's getting to be a little chilly down here in Denver. How about you? I am doing well. Uh, it is nice and uh, frigid here in the in the tundra of Montana, where I'm record, recording from these days. Uh, we've we've made our way back to uh, to Montana and enjoying the the nice frost. And I have to say, there's nothing better than snow during the holidays. Um, if if you don't have to work through it, you don't have to drudge through it. It isn't it isn't preventing you from having a normal life. But uh, walking the dogs in the snow, having the snowfall where you're sitting inside next to a fire, I love it. I absolutely love it. Awesome. We're going to be heading out of town the week before Christmas to a more tropical climate. So I don't know how white of a Christmas we'll have, but uh, well, we'll be back here before Christmas. So we may still have a white Christmas with sunburns, maybe. There you go. Well, it it is interesting for for anybody who's lived north of the equator and and rather north of the equator to uh, to experience uh, or be in the holiday season south of it, uh, you know, you, you have the pictures from Australia where they go to the beach for barbecues. I think for many people who <laughs> think about Christmas, they go, oh my gosh, that's insane. Of course, just Aussie, they're going, what else would you do? Come yeah, on. Well, of course, right. It's all <laughs> relative. Scheme. On. Now, I don't know what they're going to do now. Um, it's it's a conflicted report on on how um, how locked down they are. If they are allowed to go to to the beach and have a barbie, um, but uh, hopefully, hopefully by in the next couple of weeks, everything will be resolved. COVID will be gone, and everyone can flood the beaches and have a barbie for for Christmas. Right. Well, you know that's just an exa- that's a perfect example. I mean, first off, Australia is huge. It's massive. You know, so just because it's bad in one area doesn't mean it's bad everywhere. But you read the reports. I mean, people are calling Australia penal colony again and the world's largest prison. Um, But I follow a girl who's a triathlete down in Australia. I follow her on Instagram. And I mean, she's posting pictures of her going out to races and training and hanging out with people all the time. So um, I wonder just how most things, right? The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Yes. Some areas it's probably pretty strict. Other areas it's not. So well, that, that that really does hit on a on a key issue with communication via the internet, where there's just a, a lack of um, 
two-sided kind of viewpoints and communication. It's just, it's often unrefined and you can, you can have these ideas amplified. And to your point, it's, it's probably somewhere where, yeah, some of those things are happening and other parts it isn't. And then, yeah, by the way, Australia is massive, massive, mostly uninhabited. Uh, and so, you know, don't, whatever you read as bad as it is, penal colony, uh, just, just, you know, if, if you really want to get into that, do some research, find out what, it, what's actually going on. Yeah. yeah. Listen to some podcasts. Um, yeah. Sure listen to do. us. We'll, we'll tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're the honest brokers. All right. So before we get into anything, you, you have some announcements you want to get through. So yeah. So so, it off. Yeah. So our first newsletter is on the way. We've started getting subscribers. Yes. Um, so that will be, um, we just did another quick uh, review of the final draft right before we started recording. So we're going to get that sent out. Uh, hopefully you folks out there who have signed up will be reading it before you listen to this podcast. Hey, We talked and I think we're going to also post the newsletter just publicly on Substack. So folks who haven't signed up can read it, get an idea of what it's going to be. And I think it's a good one. It's a, We're trying to make these short, quick, two-minute read. Um, the first one is about inflation. So don't expect a 10,000-word treatise on inflation. It focuses on one, one narrow, very pinpoint specific topic in inflation. And the idea is to just give you a, a better view of or a better way of looking at something that uh, Chairman Powell recently said regarding uh, transit transitory inflation, which we've made fun of a bit before on this podcast. So be on the lookout for that. And as always, you know, forward it on to your friends, tell them about it. Let's get this, start getting this community built up. And also speaking of our Substack, uh, a lot of you know that I blog over at my blog, Strength and Reason, a lot of about a lot of the same stuff that we talk about here on the podcast. And Paul and I were talking, it didn't really make sense that I was doing that over there and then talking about the same thing over here. So I'm just going to start doing my blog, start blogging about mental models and critical thinking and whatnot over on the Mentally Unscripted Substack. And I'm going to turn strength and reason. It's still going to focus on reason and rationality, but it's going to be a little more opinionated, a little more, contain Ooh. a few more rants, I think, and then maybe <laughs> some of my thoughts on legal topics and whatnot. So uh, there's going to be a little bit of a change there, but I'm going to start putting up some stuff at uh, Mentally Unscripted. And we've kicked around the idea of putting, starting to put together like a mental model data database. So I think maybe we'll start doing that over at Mentally Unscripted too. Uh, don't expect that to come fast though. <laughs> this is a, all long-term stuff, but we're going to start That's doing right. that. Uh, another one, um, my appearance on Jamie Kane's Liberty Uninterrupted, that finally dropped. Uh, so that's that's good. And then uh, Paul and I, speaking of Liberty Uninterrupted, we also both recorded another episode of that a few weeks ago. And talk about snake bit technology. I think it took us three hours to record an hour and a half long podcast uh, <laughs> due to some some issues. And uh, Zencaster has normally been great for us, but that night yeah. I don't know what was happening. Uh, but we were having issues with Zencaster. I think Jamie's laptop rebooted on him once. Um, so just, <laughs> and when you have three people all trying to coordinate technology and, and things are going wrong for all three people, it just doesn't make for a good night. But I think, I think we got enough good chunks of material together that we can edit that together and get something somewhat listenable out. So I don't know. What do you think about that, Paul? Uh, I, I love the conversation. It was, it was a real shame that we had the issues with the, uh, the technology because sometimes the, the conversation is flowing between people and ideas 
and that's the exciting uh, kind of the the environment you want to be in. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, we we just had a couple of uh, technology snafus. But you, I think uh, you get beyond that. I think the content is solid. I think it's it's yeah. definitely worth a listen. And unfortunately, every time I said something brilliant, it's when we weren't recording. I don't, I don't know what happened. I, I noticed that that was a good hour. We missed we missed we, all a whole <laughs> a book's worth of great thoughts. It was a shame. Uh, I know. And when we were recording is when I had drool kind of running out of my mouth, and I you know felt really dumb. Um, so, and, uh, we've got some irons in the fire about getting some other guests here on mentally unscripted and about us getting on other people's podcasts. So that's good. Uh, if you want to build a community, right, you got to get out there and, uh, get appearances on other podcasts. Yeah. And we made an announcement last episode, but we'll make it again. Um, Paul and I were talking about putting together a, um, a series of what the future is going to look like from in various areas. So economics, the law, um, gene editing and health, those sorts of things. Um, so if you folks have got any ideas of guests in any areas that might want to come on and talk about that, let us know, because that'll be a lot of fun. Or if you listeners, if you're somewhat of an expert in any of those areas and have some thoughts on the future, um, let us know and we can uh, get in touch with you and see if you might be a good fit for an episode. And lastly, we uh, scheduled another episode with Myron, Myron Weber from uh, Mental Supermodels. This will be his third appearance on the podcast, which makes yes. him the, the most frequent guest. <laughs> and um, Paul, I know you you set that up, so I'll let you maybe give the listeners a little teaser on what that's going to be. Yes, I, I'm very excited for this conversation. It ties in many of the elements that we like to discuss on this uh, this podcast. So ideas about models of reality, of what we're seeing around us, incentives. But uh, this one is going to be focused on this idea of democracy versus a, a republic and the way in which we um, sort of measure and think about those concepts as they relate to our governance structures. So I, I, he has some ideas and some models in his head that he wants to share. And I think we're just going to have a great conversation uh, about that. We've, we've talked about those topics in, in different different episodes related to our concepts on liberty, thinking about it from more of a libertarian perspective, the, the value of government, uh, of governments and governance. And I think this is, this is going to add to that toolkit. So I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, I am too. Th an area that I've gotten interested in recently is this idea of what, what is America supposed to be? Is it supposed to be a democracy? Um, reading the writings of the founding fathers, it really doesn't appear that way. And if you go all the way back to Aristotle, who was, uh, he listed democracy as one of the worst forms of government. And um, so wh what exactly are we supposed to be? Is it some form of a republic? Is it a democracy? If if not a democracy, then when did this whole idea of democracy come about? When did America crown mm -hmm. itself defender of democracy worldwide? Um, so that's a, it's a pretty interesting topic. And yeah. okay, and we've got one last announcement. This is a big announcement from Paul. <laughs> Drum roll, please. Oh, um. <laughs> I, I am officially uh, on this episode and going forward on all episodes going to be using my first name, Stefan, uh, for all promotional material. Uh, there's there's a long, boring story. I'm not going to bore our, our listeners with why I was using my middle name, Paul, um, as our as my avatar online. And, and that's how I, I came to know Scott was as Paul. But uh, as I've combined a little bit of my, uh, my other personal pursuits and my professional pursuits, I realized it's creating too much confusion for, for people I love. Um, so I'm just going to be going to Stefan. There is no other name. 
I'm not going to have one of these episodes. I come back and turns out that my real name is Buford or Roberto or Ray or some other name. No, it's Stefan. And um, anyways, I just want to let everyone know that. So they, 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 they think that, well, wow, Scott's got a, a new, uh, a new co-host that sounds a lot like Paul, but uh, well, I don't know. He's right. got a different name. So now you know. Well, and, and don't worry, I'm probably going to keep calling you Paul. So <laughs> just, just call so, it the other guy, right? right yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So folks just remember Paul equals Stefan. So that's, yes, that's, that's right. Good. Okay. All right. So let's, let's get into the meat of this episode. And I think we, we should start in Italy. What do you think? I, everything good starts in Italy, I guess. <laughs> it does. Take us, take us away. Okay. So uh, I just saw this this morning. So I just I read a couple quick articles on it. But CNN and I believe MSN was the other was the other source I found for this. But a man in Italy uses a fake silicone arm to try to get vaccine certificate. So apparently a guy wanted to get a vaccine certificate in Italy so he could, you know, enjoy things like, you know, socializing and going out to dinner and to the movies and whatnot. Being a human. Yes. Right. (laughs) So he got the great idea of trying to use a fake silicone arm (laughs) to get the vaccine and he got caught. Not much no, to say no, here. Do we do we know exactly how this man was caught? They did they notice that one one bicep was three times the size of the other? How, how did how <laughs> um, did they find out? I think it's just said a nurse noticed that something. Um, oh, let me go back and see. After oh, it, the color of the skin, it was much lighter compared to his hands or his face. So then the nurse uh, further inspected the area and realized that he had a fake arm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love I love the creativity. Don't you have to I, I do. I, I you know, and no matter what you think about the vaccines and I know that some of the liberal media has is, you know, really condemning the guy for trying to cheat the system, but mm. man, thumbs up to this. That's that's Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I I feel like, so I, I lived in Italy, this was 20 some years ago, uh, during college, I lived in Italy for, for a long time. It is a place I absolutely love. And I, I feel as though in, in recent years, the Italians don't get enough credit for something like this, which I consider just all out creativity. Uh, the Italians are, in my experience, culturally, just a very creative group of people. They're always finding ways to think about the system and, and stand outside of it. So I'll give you one example. Uh, the tax laws in Italy historically have just been some of the most, um, you know, it's, it's like a maze. There's, there's just mountains and mountains and mountains of these, these different laws, always intended to do something, but then impacting something else, much like laws everywhere. And one of them had to do with uh, taxes on your home. So uh, if your home is complete, you build a home and it's complete, then you have to start paying taxes on your home. Well, the the way they found to get around that was that they would leave like a piece of rebarb sticking out of the top of the house so that they could claim that the house was no longer actually complete. Uh, and so therefore, they didn't actually have to pay taxes on the house. And I, you know, I think about that and I think about the silicon arm and I'm thinking, man, these the, the Italians are so creative at finding ways of saying, no state, you're not going to own me. You're not going to, I'm not going to comply. And I, I just, I love it. Whether or not you think this guy should have the, the vaccine or not, you have to applaud the creativity. And I, and I think it's impressive. Absolutely. And I was just reading here, um, apparently, <laughs> I, this is another hilarious thing. So there was a green pass in Italy and 
that required you to get vaccinated for to do various things. And now there's the super green pass, <laughs> which Ooh. will get you into bars, restaurants, theaters, indoor entertainment venues. So, uh, yeah, so super green pass. I don't know what's next. The mega green pass. The, the mega, the mega, mega green pass. Yeah. The, the Cuisinart green pass. I don't know. So who knows? Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, so that's so. Fine. so- uh, yeah, that's that's fun. It, it also speaks to a couple of questions that I think are top of mind for me, which are we're, we're seeing new variants. We've now seen several new variants come out. And the uh, every time we see a variant, we seem to see the same type of discussion about how to address it. And the model suggests that we need to continue with boosters and the boosters just constantly update the boosters. I'm, I, I, I'm assuming that the uh, Pfizer and Modernas of the world are saying, well, we've sequenced this new variant. We've now made changes to our underlying booster shot. Therefore, this is now also inclusive of this, this latest variant. And uh, there's so you see that as kind of the narrative, and uh, I think Israel just came out and said, "Oh, we're gonna we're, we're now going to have a uh, we're now going to have a fourth shot, fourth booster in order for your vaccine card to be maintained." And and you do wonder, okay, so is this just it? This is the, this is the steady state, which is that new variant comes out whenever it does. A new booster is now required as part of your card, your your vaccine uh, schedule, in order for you to be cleared for wherever the state is actually allowing you, requiring you to have a vaccine. So you have that as kind of a, a starting point, a baseline that's that's starting to, I think, be conditioned. And then you have the other side of it, which is someone like this gentleman who's, who doesn't have it at all, uh, putting out the silicon arm, which is saying, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, you have the first, the first people that haven't had the vaccine at all. And they're, they're, pushing back like like this gentleman is, or just waiting for perhaps more uh, safety data, variety of reasons that they may or may not have, have uh, taken the vaccine. Uh, and I, I don't know that the, a new variant is at all going to change their perspective on, on whether or not they should get the vaccine. And then we have this other part, this other question, which is around, is this the right response that we need every time? And, and I I, I know I've mentioned Vinay Prasad several times on this podcast. I, I was listening to a discussion he was having about whether or not, again, are we seeing um, are we seeing increased mortality? Are we seeing greater threats from these new variants? And what it it, it comes down to is there doesn't seem to be a lot of great data when we record this new variant. In fact, I think uh, with the latest Omicron Omicron variant, the scientists from South Africa was saying actually this seems people that are getting it, it's actually rather mild. Now, I, I don't know if that's people that have been vaccinated, vaccinated plus had COVID, COVID only, not even having COVID. I, I, I don't know. But it, it does beg the question is, is, is just this another example of we've got like these, this, this stream at the very top, which is this, this message about how we have to deal with this pandemic, which is consistent, just shot, 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 shot. Uh, you know, close down, close down, close down, and then you've got questions from from scientists and and, and healthcare providers like Vinay and, and others who are saying we're seeing this attenuate the same way we would expect to see in other types of respiratory viruses. Can we not start to to stop acting like this? This is never going to end. Um, I think those are the kinds of questions everyone should be asking. If you're vaccinated, if you're unvaccinated. Um, and whether or not you're vaccinated, thinking about getting another booster, whether or not you're going to keep on getting boosters as long as they tell you, there should be a question of, does this ever end? Uh, am I wrong? Okay, Scott. 
I was on mute there. Sorry about that. No, you're exactly right. Matt Taibbi was recently on Joe Rogan, and he brought up this exact thing, this idea that government wants us to think that it can solve every problem. And some problems just aren't solvable. They're mm. just something that we have to learn to deal with. And colds and flus are a perfect example. Most people don't know this, but we've only wiped two viruses out. One is uh, um, smallpox, and the other... Um, I think it was a livestock virus. doesn't even afflict humans. And smallpox was a pretty, there were pretty specific characteristics to that that allowed us to wipe it out. And mm -hmm. one of them was the short incubation period. Um, if you come down with symptoms, they know you probably got it within about the last 24 hours. So it was easy for them um, to go identify everyone you had come in contact with and round them up and get them quarantined and get them vaccinated. Um, and, you know, with the cold or flu or COVID where the incubation period is a week or more, that's going to be incredibly difficult and it, and it um it mutates so fast mm -hmm. that you know once you get one strain under control there's another strain out there so at some point you know we can't keep wearing masks for the next 50 years we can't keep or, telling or, or people, can we i I, well, I guess i i, I from my perspective the, the yeah. answer is is obviously no that doesn't seem feasible or prudent but i think that's the that's what people should be asking themselves we think we talk about the end in mind right as, as right. a model and right now, uh, the the map of reality suggests that we we wear masks of uh, and we and we boost indefinitely as long as there's variants. Which if we did that for for the common flu, we'd be wearing masks every year. We would have boosters every year, every and it would be required every year. Is right. that, is that the model that we want? Is the question exactly? Um, so I think you're exactly right. Right, we need to ask that question. Is what, what do we want the world to look like going forward and how much um, individual liberty do we, and autonomy and control over one's life do we want to allow people to have, especially when we have successfully combated uh, outbreaks before, pandemics before, by sticking with the tried and true, protect the vulnerable, let the... Uh, let the less vulnerable develop herd immunity. And we're just, we're, we seem to be throwing all of that out the window this time yeah. around. And we're trying this completely new approach. And part of the reason is likely that we have people making decisions in a vacuum. So you've got someone like Anthony Fauci, right? He's an expert in one area, but he's not considering other areas. He's not considering the economic cost or um, the social costs of what they're doing. So, and this is one of the problems with the technocracy is you have people, they're trying to apply data and all these, you know, technical uh, frameworks to come up with a solution, but we, we don't know that they're taking in all of the relevant information. So, it, you know, in, um, in data processing, right, they have that term garbage in, garbage out. Yes. I mean, if you're not taking in all the right data, if your inputs aren't correct, your output's not going to be correct. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a male, nail uh, model. <laughs> that's I think that's what, what we're seeing is, yes. you know, the, these doctors, they know one thing. They know infectious diseases, but they're not considering the impact that the shutdowns are having uh, on the on the economy and the long in long term impact it's having, especially on poor countries. 
So um, I know there's several reports out there. I'll see if I can dig one up is that the lockdowns are going to cause far more death than COVID. Uh, just the, the COVID deaths are more, they're more, they're right now, yeah. right? So we're, they're right in our face right now. Whereas like the deaths from the lockdown, they're going to be dispersed. They're going to be, um, uh, their relationship to the lockdowns are going to be more spread out. So that's going to give people plenty of time to say, well, it's not the lockdowns that are causing the kids in uh, Uganda to starve because that's going to come years down the road. Um, and so that's, I just don't see people taking that into consideration. I, I, I'd be surprised if they were. And, and unfortunately, this is a, an area of a black box where I don't think, I, I know I don't, and I, I don't know many people that do feel like the public policy is, is transparent and we understand the inputs into it so that we can say, we understand why these decisions are being made, what, what offsets or costs are reasonable, right? And um, I, I just, I don't feel like that's happening. And, and I'm, I'm curious, I want to get your thoughts on, um, a, a, I guess, an idea. Uh, Steven Johnson, he's a writer. Uh, he's written several books. Uh, one I have here, it's called Where Good Ideas Come From. Uh, I think he also writes maybe uh, for the New York Times. And he has a sub stack. And he published a piece that was describing how COVID is being taken so, so seriously because of the advancements over the last uh, 80 years, really, in, in medicine to, to this false idea that we are able to protect us from all of this disease. And, and so people, because we've, we've made so many advancements in vaccines and um, antibacterial treatment, and then we've got other amazing technologies, uh, being able to, to do bone scans and, and MRI machines. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on, right? For the ways in which we can treat cancers, uh, viruses, uh, bacteria, that when something like this happens, it's magnified. We've gone from, uh, well, we can, we can address and solve problems as bad as AIDS, where you can actually extend uh, the, the life of someone who's, who's caught just what 20 years ago was a complete death sentence. Now people are terrified because it's something that's beyond the control of the medical establishment. And his theory was, is, or, or the idea that he was, he was putting forward is that's because that's recency bias. We're so accustomed to where we are today, we, we don't have any history there. Uh, and you know the, the, the numbers for the Spanish flu are just so significantly higher. And yet there, the response was in, in some ways kind of muddled. I, I don't know. Does that resonate with you when you hear that? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, I think you're right. It's recency bias. And it's this thought that we are so advanced that we can just, if we just put our minds to it, that technology will come and save us. Um, but you know, like I said, what Matt Taibbi said on his recent appearance on Joe Rogan, right? There's not, there's not a solution to everything. Or like we've talked about, um, with opportunity costs, even if there is a solution, we have to ask ourselves, what's the cost of implementing that what's solution? Of, what yeah. are we giving up Absolutely. Um, for something, a virus, you know, and again, we're, we're not trying to minimize the virus, but we're no, just trying no, to look at, at it logically, you know, less than 1% of the people die from this. In fact, less than 1% of the people who get it are hospitalized. Um, and I think at the highest, at the highest risk categories, it's only what, like six or 7% of the people are hospitalized. And out of those, you know, 80, upper 80% of the people hospitalized are obese or have vitamin D deficiencies or both. Um, so, you know, the vaccine may be great and it may work, but there's still a lot you can do on your end yeah. to help protect yourself against it. So would wiping this thing out, I mean, is it worth the cost? Right. 
and I don't know that that's a question that's being asked. Well, and, and actually, you can juxtapose that idea of the cost of actually extinguishing this virus with the, the language that's being uh, has been proposed and shared for, for decades now about gain of function and the need to constantly study gain of function. One of the principles behind that is that as humans take over greater and greater parts of the earth and, and we decrease the space between us and, and the uh, animals, that we increase the likelihood of contamination, of finding a new virus that can, that can um, infect humans. And so they're, they're, they're telling us that, well, we have to do all this research so that we can figure out a way to be able to address these viruses that are unknown to us today, but are in the future going to happen. And then on one hand, we're seeing what the cost is that they're, they're telling us that they are willing to, to pay for us to extinguish this, this virus and to keep deaths down to the level that they are. And again, I, I go back to with you don't have to minimize the effects of a respiratory virus like like COVID to have a reasonable discussion about what is the appropriate response to this. That's that's another part of the article from from Stephen Johnson where he talked about that there is some benefit in his mind that the world now has a a, a virus protocol of what it means to be locked down for two weeks. Such that if that's to say in 2025, assuming everything's opened up by then, which at this point I'm beginning to wonder, uh, that if if a new virus came out, people would be saying, "Okay, I, I know what it is. We're going to have to go into the house. We have to lock down for a month, and we're going to work from home for a month. We're not going to see our family for that month." They they already have this conditioning built in, and he received a lot of flack for that, saying, "Well, you know that that's that's the opposite of what you want. That's that's a very negative type of." Uh, response and, and it may not be medically uh, sanctioned or good, right? But I, I, he makes he makes a point. I think that's interesting. That he's right. We're now conditioned to think that these are all ways in which you can respond to a pandemic. And uh, now, now ideas that again a year ago were complete conspiracy theory. This idea that you would have a COVID pass on your phone, that COVID pass would allow you into different streets uh, or different restaurants and bars or, or just any kind of public activity that was considered a uh, complete conspiracy theory. Well, now you're seeing that already being rolled out in places like Israel. So I think, I think his, his observation is accurate for better or worse, that we, we now have a response protocol that politicians know how to use and will use for this. Those are the costs that we're paying now. It, that, that's what it gets back to me. These are the costs that we're now paying that, you know, at some point in the future, there may be three months in which you're, you're locked into your house because a new virus has come out. Nothing I can argue with there. So. <laughs> All right. So should we move on to the next topic? Yeah. I, I feel like we're kind of beating COVID to death here. Yes. Bottom line is, is the response just doesn't seem rational. And no. yet it seems like we're doomed to continue with the same response. Again, right? Going to go back to the Matt Taibbi on Rogan thing. It was the, this was a good podcast. There was just a, they they brought up a lot of good points. They were mentioning that there was an article in I think the New York Times talking about how Omicron the symptoms didn't seem to be much worse than a, a cold, and they commented that it, it almost seemed like they were sad to have to report that. So I just I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> the sad um, so. the sad news is this. Right. Is, oh, well, hold on. Is everyone sad now that you know people like Chris Cuomo are getting fired from CNN and people on Twitter 
forgot her name, but she's from the New York Times. She, she can't get the, these people to react to her posts anymore, even though for years with a million followers, she was able to stab people. Maybe maybe what we're seeing is just a complete sadness in traditional media. Hopefully. Hopefully we're starting to see a bit of a shift You know, with folks like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Mate going more independent with their sub stacks. Mm-hmm. And people, I think, are just they're starting to look for more objective news. And we know that everyone's got some bias. Um, Everyone has bias, yes. Right. You know, we, we don't agree with Matt Taibbi on his politics. Um, he falls more in the Bernie Sanders camp than we do. But we still find a kindred spirit in him in that he is willing to point out where the establishment is going off the rails, where it's using propaganda to set up a false narrative. We may disagree on the solutions to things, but I think we all agree on what the problems are. And we're not just getting yeah. roped into this hive mind situation. Um, And, you know, and one thing they talked about on that podcast was when Gupta went on to Joe Rogan's podcast and Rogan (laughs) just eviscerated him over the, uh, the horse paste, ivermectin horse paste comments made by CNN. And it was really sort of a, a, a come to Jesus moment, they think for CNN, because that's the point they really realized that Rogan's audience really is bigger than CNN's audience. Like they had been in a, in a state of denial up till then they knew it was true, but they kept trying to deny it. And at that point it seemed to have backfired on them. (laughs) That was pretty interesting. And to carry on with that, right. Another interesting thing that Taiba brought up is that, you know, there was a time where we didn't really tolerate shenanigans from our press, right? We expected the press to be those, that those people that held our officials, our elites, if you want to call them that accountable. And now we're tolerating the press getting things wrong or outright lying as long as they're lying in the right direction. Right. You know, as long as CNN is saying that Rogan was taking horse pace, that's fine. But if CNN had come up and said that, you know, ivermectin's a wonder drug and it cured Rogan's case of COVID, right? That that's lying in the wrong direction for CNN's audience. Yeah, so they wouldn't have tolerated that. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting, right? As long as it, you you can get it wrong, as long as you get it wrong in the right direction. I think that well, was it, a, a good insight. It's it's interesting because you have the notion of audience capture, right? Uh, where you can't tell your audience uh, for fear of losing clicks and 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 eyeballs the the truth. And so this this is oftentimes thrown at uh, online creators such as Joe Rogan. Uh, for for being captured by their audience and unable to 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 backtrack or admit when you're wrong, and yet what you just described is is for a major news network, the audience capture that they have that they can't they can't go back and say we we lied, we were wrong, this was this was inaccurate reporting. Um, but it, for for many of us, we we at least the 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 clips that I've seen over the last several years, I haven't thought of them as reporting. You know, when I see things from Don Lemon or from Chris Cuomo, um, I, I never thought oh, this is just strong reporting. I thought this is editorializing, which, okay, that's what it is, right? But let's not pretend that it's something else. And I, I do wonder, I do wonder you know, with Cuomo's recent firing and uh, some additional uh, comments being made by the new CEO of the parent company of CNN, if we may start to see a change, if if maybe they're thinking, listen, our strategy over the last five, 10 years has been about this editorializing and about hitting an audience and not reporting. That's not going to play in the next 10 years as this continues to break apart. As decentralization continues to eat away at our audience, we need to have a different advantage. So maybe the advantage of the past editorializing being entirely audience captured, does that start to not play as well in this in this new paradigm in the next decade? Yeah, I think they are seeing that. And let's just go back to Rogan again. 
I mean, this is a guy, he'll have Bernie Sanders on, he'll have Tulsi Gabbard on, and then he'll have Dan Crenshaw, right, a Republican on. You know, he'll have people from different ends of the spectrum on, and he'll let them talk. So it's a place where you can get good information. Maybe he's not the best interviewer. I, you know, I don't know. I think he's pretty good. I think he seems to have good conversations with folks. But you, at least you're getting information from both ends of the spectrum. Whereas CNN, you're not getting that. And yeah. I think they're starting to realize that maybe that's a problem. So I, there was a comment, I think it may have been by by Matt Taibbi, about um, Joe Rogan's attention and focus during one of these sessions, how it is he's laser focused on what someone's talking about and how they he really wants to drain everything from from what they're saying. And I think that really resonates with people. If you contrast that with what you see on, on TV or, or even on the internet now, but it's the same type of format. It's short. The person comes on, they've got their talking points. The person that's asking the questions has their talking points. And it's, it's a, intended to be a complete battle, but at the highest, most superficial level. Whereas Rogan, he, he, he has his opinions. If you listen to him, he, he's, he's very vocal about those opinions. And he'll push back in ways uh, when, he's, when he disagrees with what the person has said. And he'll ask questions. Um, but he'll also allow them to fully flesh out an idea especially if it's one that he doesn't agree with, he, he, he allows them the time to do it. And you know, I, I've, also, I've often thought, listen, if you disagree with someone, let them speak longer than you and they'll, they'll basically do all your work for you in a debate. And, and that's, I, I think that's what's missing in, in so much of this communication, that if you disagree with someone, let them flesh out the idea. They may start to see holes in, in their argument. And, and in truth, maybe you find out that there's other information that you haven't considered. Uh, but that's what, that's what Rogan's format is. And, and it's hard for someone like CNN to compete with that. It just is. They, they, they've built up an entire model of these short segments of bringing someone on from the, you know, quote unquote, opposite sides, as I, as I have in air quotes, and saying, well, uh, here, here's my idea. You think it's okay to teach this in schools. You think it's okay to ban this in schools. Why is that? And then it's just superficial conversation. Yeah, it's it's your best two minutes versus my best two minutes, and then move on to the next topic. Exactly, and I, I don't think, except for the audience that really desires that to just reinforce their tribal affiliation, I think most people are are growing exhausted from that format. I think so too. But the, you know, this actually leads into another topic that uh, I know talked about offline that I thought was interesting about this sort of changes in global geopolitical. And I don't, I don't know that it's just global and geopolitical, but you know, I think about what the internet means for for our society and how to think about its its impact on our day-to-day lives. And one of those and we talk about it in terms of centralization, decentralization is the way in which governments are going to respond in the future. But it's not just governments, is it? It's it's organizations like CNN, um it's individuals, it's um you know, some, some groups in the middle. So you've got, you know, um, small businesses and how they have to react to a new world. And when you see where the internet's going, you're kind of seeing these two different flows. And I, I think of Joe Rogan as in the future. And why do I mean by that? Well, I, I see this in the past it's democracy versus communism. It's capitalism versus socialism. And I'm thinking there's this new paradigm, which is just open versus closed. And the Joe Rogan's in the open internet. He says he's in this world where anybody can be on here. We have a format where you can share your opinions, your ideas. We're going to discuss them. I, I'm not constrained at all um, by, by who you are, by your affiliation, what you want to talk about. None of that matters, 
right? And you contrast that with a closed organization, which I consider most of the um, existing legacy type of media, which has a narrative of some kind that it that it seeks to push. And because of that, it closes out information, it has a funnel and it restricts ideas. And then even the ideas that maybe run counter to said narrative, it has to manipulate those in some way. And you, you mentioned the example of the New York Times having to report that Omicron, maybe all you had was, was minor flu symptoms, which by the way, we should all be excited about, right? Shouldn't we all be excited about? But regardless, there's, it's, they're, they're having to think about how they massage this information for their audience, who is, who is tribal. Right, um, because everybody has has a tribe. So I see Rogan being on the future of open, and I see closed is having to compete with that. And closed is always going to be looking for ways to to close the door, right? And and I found this really good uh, description of this. I'm just going to read it. It's a it's a developer um, who who I follow on on Twitter, but he works actively in the, in the decentralized space. He said, the geopolitical implications of Web3, and Web3 is just the next generation. We can talk about that in a minute, what we mean by definitions. But Web3 is a rather profound. Web3 is fundamentally incompatible with the national strategy and ideology of China. And by that, he really means the CCP. Whereas US policymakers are starting to embrace it, the Web3 revolution is quietly altering the trajectory to the two superpowers. So the CCP is choosing the world of atoms, semiconductors, renewable energy. The US chooses the world of bits, Web3, metaverse, and so on. I, I don't think that that his second description, the idea of the CCP choosing you know, semiconductors, renewable energy, and the US choosing Web3 metaverse is... Uh, that there, there can't be overlap there and that there doesn't need to be. You can't have the metaverse and, and the Web3 without some kind of energy source, right? And that energy source has to be um, sustainable over time, right? But what he's really describing is an area that are we, are we going to be living in a more closed society or is Web3, uh, which for everyone listening, Web1 web was when the web first came out, think of it like mid-90s web, just a total mess of, of, of web pages. You can maybe find them on Google. Uh, and then blinking, blinking gifts all over everybody. Blinking gifts everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a carnival of ideas. It was, it was, a, it was brilliant uh, and, and also messy. And then it, it, it kind of, it really matured after the dot-com bubble. You had all these ideas, everything implodes. And then that creates the next level of services, but it was all open. That was the idea. It was an open format anybody could build on. And then what happened is you had a consolidation where you had these, these sites like Facebook, like Amazon, like Twitter, uh, that, that grouped those services and became walled gardens with their own rules. And the idea from anybody in the decentralized space is that Web3 allows us to return back to an open environment, but using incentivized tokens um, and, and other types of governance metrics to create that open environment, open, open space on the internet for ideas to thrive and to be shared and to move away from the censorship that we see on these platforms. Um, so I, I just packed a lot into what I just read. When you hear that paradigm, does it, does it seem relevant to you or do you think we're still working on a different paradigm or a different axis of like communism versus um, capitalism, democracy versus authoritarianism? Well, I think the people in charge want us to keep operating on those uh, traditional paradigms. But I hope that people are starting to realize that those paradigms are dated, that it's not Democrat versus Republican. It's elite versus the average everyday person. Um, you, you know, for example, it, w we see the elites, you know, attacking ca capitalism a lot. Like they, they want to make 
our lives more socialist by giving us more welfare, uh, UBI and whatnot, and implementing policies that cause the mom and pop restaurants and hardware stores to shut down while letting the huge companies, Walmart and Walgreens and whatnot, stay open so that they're essentially shifting um, capitalism out of the lower ranks up into the higher ranks. So their level, they're allowed to have capitalism, Mm -hmm. right? They're allowed to have their big companies that they can funnel their dollars to, their government dollars to, um, and causing, you know, uh, stock prices to go up so that the the elite's portfolios will go up. And then they've got the revolving door between Washington and all these think tanks and the boards of directors of these pharmaceutical companies and military industrial complex companies. Um, So... I think that's the new paradigm that's forming, mm. but the the elites, I don't think want us to see that they still want to make it about Democrats versus Republicans, red versus blue. And right. that's what appeals to me about the libertarian model is that the libertarian model is viewing it in the new way that it, it's the Democrats and the Republicans versus you. Um, mm. They're, you know, they disagree on about 2% of the issues. The other 98% of the issues they're, they're in lockstep on, and that stuff isn't making it into the news because they're not fighting over and nobody cares, um, even though this is the stuff that can really impact our lives. So uh, hopefully people are starting to see that. And maybe Web 3.0 is a way for, we can decentralize our communications to limit limit censorship so that people will start to see this and will start to to shift their outlooks to this new paradigm. Um, You know, as far as the, you know, China choosing the world of atoms, US choosing the world of bits, um, I mean, that's interesting. And we've been hearing it since I was in college back in the 90s that, you know, the U.S. is moving to a service-based economy. The rest of the world is standing in a manufacturing-based economy. And we're seeing that. We're outsourcing a lot of our production, um, depending on other countries, to produce a lot of the goods that we use every day. But I think with the supply shocks that we saw recently, you know, maybe, you know, maybe some of that production is going to start to come back home or at least come yeah. closer to home, maybe, you know, relocate to Mexico. So maybe the U.S. will will step back a little bit on this um, choosing the world of bits and get back into the world of atoms a little bit. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's overlap. Um, I don't think we can totally get rid of the semiconductors and renewable energy in the U.S. So I I, I don't either. And that's where I think the uh, maybe his his analysis uh, falls a little short. Uh, There's some reliance there. I, I do think there is the distinction between open and closed. So the. What what I've seen from the CCP in the last twelve months is that they are doing a series of actions to really create an even closed, more closed environment. So, what are examples of that? Everyone's aware of the Great Chinese Firewall, the Great Firewall of information that can and cannot flow out of that. Well, even even though that's existed, there's been other types of ways of getting data. So, like for example, you could get shipping data about different ships that are around the world. They recently stopped sharing that. Uh, you could get information about the economy, questionable data quality, but you could actually get that from some of the sources. They're starting to cut back on that. Uh, they just this last week or two said that they will not allow any new tech firms to be listed on um, U.S. stock exchanges, and which actually to me is a is a is a win, and and it's it's absolute travesty that um, we've allowed what they've done uh, to list companies that are not audited um, on these stock exchanges. But putting that aside, what you're seeing is is a movement towards a closed, a more closed environment where all data is controlled, uh, the information sharing is controlled, and therefore you, um, 
you you have to go to official sources to get that information. And you contrast that with the opportunity to create a brand new web that isn't censored and what that can mean for how we share information, how we collaborate. I think it's striking. Uh, I, I, I don't think the CCP values collaboration and I therefore they think of it as a, as a net negative. It's a, it's a zero sum. Uh, I think the opposite is true. Uh, you read books on innovation like Stephen Johnson's book, and it's very clear that when you allow ideas to thrive and to experiment and to collaborate, you're going to get that's where you get breakthroughs. And so, you know, interesting example of that. Uh, I saw, I think it was this last week, Elon Musk tweeted uh, or responded to a tweet that's, that stated that there were 66 years between Kitty Hawk the first sort of real man flight and landing on the moon, right? 66 years separate those two events. It's it's absolutely mind boggling, right? Especially since people have been thinking about, you know, going to the moon since, you know, the beginning of time, what would it be like to be on the moon? Um, to think that it only took that much time. Well, a lot of that has to do with the sharing of information, the collaboration of ideas. So I do think that there's a distinct advantage to being open. Uh, and I think to your point, we're seeing a pushback there. How do you share information? Joe Rogan represents the open area uh, of someone. And even though he's on a platform like Spotify, imagine if there was only one platform that was allowed. And it, let's just say it was Spotify. And everyone had to go through their process to get a podcast loaded onto that website. And they would review all your content. That's essentially what the closed environment is. And uh, you know, Joe Rogan, if he loses his contract tomorrow because he's upset somebody, he has followers everywhere that will go find him on a brand new platform or in the Web3 space, it may be a decentralized service that someone can just call. Um, but that's where you can see the distinction between those shifts. And I think that's powerful. Yeah. And I think we're, we're certainly moving more towards the decentralized. We've got the, the DAOs, the decentralized autonomous organizations. And I heard something recently about decentralized autonomous cities. I think they're calling it DAX, I think is what they are. And mm. I don't know much about them, but I think it's the same general idea behind the DAO, behind the DAC, is that you would have this city that, like a decentralized government or something. Um, I'll see if I can find some inter information. Like I said, I don't know much about it, but it, it's interesting, right? This idea of decentralization is just moving into um, all parts of the world. And mm -hmm. I know like, you know, the mentally unscripted empire is decentralized, right? We've got the the Scotopia branch down here in Colorado. We've got the Paultopia branch up there in uh, Montana. And, yeah. you know, we get, get a lot done without being co-located. Yep. Um, so one interesting thing when you, you were bringing up... Um, technologies and, and open versus closed is, uh, I heard this recently, I think it was on the propaganda report, they were talking about this, but uh, anyone who's trying to buy a new car, um, and apparently this is extending into like car car stereo systems too, I think, um, there's a chip shortage, which is causing yeah. a shortage of new cars. And the speculation is that when the US started trying to clamp fight back against Huawei and clamp down on them and put sanctions on them. Huawei knew that they were going to need these chips. So they went out on the market and started buying up all the raw materials for the chips or the chips themselves. I don't, I don't know which it was. And that's what's causing the shortage. So it's the U.S. <laughs> essentially trying to close down this market to Huawei that is causing shortages for the consumers in this country in these yeah. various products. You know, so again, I, I, it was just a blurb I heard. I'll, I'll, I think it was propaganda report. I'll try to find it and, and link to it. But, you know, whether that's true or not, it, it gets you thinking is, mm -hmm. you know, we, we talk about second order consequences, unintended consequences. Um, but when you try to shift from that open to closed, 
right? There's going to be repercussions and um, we need to, uh, we need to understand what those are. And that could be a great business opportunity for someone. If they can Mm -hmm. see that shift coming or the attempt at that shift coming, um, they could probably position themselves to take advantage of it. Um, You know, if, if someone had anticipated, if this chip story is true about Huawei, if someone had anticipated that in the U S and started buying up the raw materials for the chips, I mean, they'd be making money hand over fist right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, uh, yeah, get out there, start looking around, see what's going on. Let's let's see if, see if we can figure out the next big thing, you know, maybe it's toothpaste or something. I don't know, but um. it it may be, (laughs) it may be, um, there there was one other thing I wanted to bring up that I, I found interesting. Uh, there's a, because it actually ties into our last conversation. We talked about tribalism. We mention it all the time. And I think the reason it's so common in our conversations, because it's on display at all times. Uh, when you when you send an article to someone and they want to know who that person is before they read the content uh, or what the source is and what that signifies as being left or right uh, left or right leaning and um, and we've we've talked about the dangers of being so tribal that you're you're not focused on truth seeking you're really focused on appeasing whatever tribe you're affiliated with there was a um, there was a, a developer. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I don't actually have his name in front of me. I think it's Munib, perhaps. Uh, but he's been in the the, the crypto space for I want to say I don't know, eight nine years, which makes him kind of an OG at this point. And uh, he's always been very very much in favor of Bitcoin. But he put out a tweet uh, just a couple of days ago, and I'll just read the first line. It said Bitcoin maximalism is limiting the growth of Bitcoin. And I'll stop there. Actually, there's there's other elements in that tweet, but it's more about retweeting. He's speaking to the fact that. Yeah, for those who are unaware with this concept, uh, in the crypto space, there's what they're called the maximalists. So they they find one token, they believe that's the one token that will be used for all use cases in the in the cryptographic space, decentralized space. And so anytime someone suggests that maybe there's another way of looking at a problem, uh, or that one of these alternative tokens would be valuable, they they shut it down. They say, well, no, no, that's just that's just you being. Uh, they use a variety of tacks, uh, things like, well, you're just you're not competent on knowing the technology. Uh, you're just trying to do a get rich scheme. Uh, you uh, don't understand the dynamics of the technology. So th- there's 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 a series of attacks that that may happen. And from coming from someone who's been in the space, who's always been very pro Bitcoin, this was a really great way of pushing back on that tribalism in my mind. Uh, and this was re- retweeted by Balaji, who I think is, is has similar feelings that it's there are questions. There's always going to be questions about who are the bad actors in this space? Who are the people that are just in here to make a buck versus actually make change? But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, we understand how or why these, these technologies would or wouldn't succeed. And, and just being a maximalist and saying there's only one way to do things makes you pretty much as toxic or very toxic um, to, to the, uh, as the elites. And, and just two more points I'll bring up here. There's a cost to doing this, right? Uh, Twitter is, is the space in which most of the crypto people communicate. So that's, that is the, the, the forum. And when he tweets this out, he's, he's making his line in the sand, right? So now other people can, can come in and attack. So, uh, you see that in the Twitter feed. You go through and read the comments. A lot of people talk about you don't understand maximalism. It's actually it's part of the immune, immunology of Bitcoin and why it's going to survive is because we are so ardent. We don't hate. Uh, we hate on other people that are going to attack our our protocol. And so you you also invite that kind of scorn when you go against 
or supposedly go against your tribe. And it, it, there is a cost to doing it publicly. Most people don't have to do it publicly. They can do it privately. Uh, but I, I, you, you also understand why there, it can be difficult for those to disassociate from the tribe or to say something that runs counter to the tribe. This goes back to this idea of audience capture. Like, are you willing to speak the truth or are you only willing to say things that your audience uh, wants to hear? That's a good point. And I agree. I think being closed-minded, it stifles innovation more than it helps it. Um, so if the maximalists are looking only at Bitcoin, only Bitcoin is the future, then they're losing out on all the other things that Bitcoin can't do. Um, you know, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Bitcoin does not support, or if it does support not very well, smart contracts. That's more of an Ethereum thing. Mm -hmm. So if we go the Bitcoin maximalist route, are we going to lose out on smart contracts? Uh, I don't view that as a very good situation to be in when we could lose yeah. something that could be very valuable to us. And when we talk about mental models, right, we talk about this, Shane Parrish talks about this a lot, like this lattice work of mental models, where he borrows mental models from all these different disciplines, economics, physics, biology, math, and puts them together in a framework. And if you're not open-minded enough, if you're a physicist who's only looking at physics, right, you're cutting yourself off to any helpful information that you can pull from biology and from math and economics to help you. It makes me think of this idea of specialization versus generalization. And I don't know if this is really a great comparison, but generalizers, they have more resilience. A species that can um, feed on many different sources of food if the environment changes, they can just find food in, from a different area or feed on a, a you know different source of food. Whereas a specializer, they can only feed on one type of food. If the environment changes and that source of food dies out, then the specializer dies out. So, and, and there's advantages to both, right? The specializer can be really good at one thing, whereas the generalizer is you know pretty good at a lot of things. But I think when we're talking about the fast pace of change, and maybe maybe this is a high stakes area. You know, we talk about stakes. Um, if it's high stakes, maybe um, we need to be open, more open to different areas uh, moving forward so we can get the best change possible or the best technologies possible in place to accommodate this change. If the world really is moving towards this great reset, one world government, and we want to push back against that, then we can't put all of our eggs in one in the Bitcoin basket, I don't think. I think we have to open ourselves up to different technologies. Yeah. Well, and and. You know, my position is is similar, but I think a little bit more nuanced uh, in the sense that I think we need to be open to having conversations about limitations. As you said, what are the limitations of the existing protocol? And, and, and you could generalize what I'm saying, but you, you have a solution, right? In this case, we have it for Bitcoin. What, what use cases can it solve? What use cases can it not solve based on its existing design? What changes to that design would be needed in order for it to address these other use cases? And there are great, great discussions around that, uh, and there, there's a there's the question about for the use cases it can't or it's not very good at solving. What, uh, how valuable are those? Can they be pursued? And that's where I think you have all these other chains that have been built up. And I, I guess as someone who's studied the space um, reasonably well, I, I do think it's foolish to throw out all of the other chains as altcoins and to just dismiss them as having zero value without understanding the underlying technology and use cases. It's, 
it's 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 been the case that some technologies come to market uh, and they're not well understood before they they really start to solidify and have their value proposition validated by the market. So it's it's you know to be able to choose the winners and losers before they even um, go to the market at times can be difficult in these highly technical areas. So you need to be cognizant of that. Um, I I I don't I, I just don't know what those if the you know the biggest use cases right now. And this is specific to crypto is going to be in the NFT space and decentralized finance, and I, I think those are phenomenally interesting areas. And it's it's a question of how those mature over time and what services are are going to be permissible by governments, which ones are not. Uh, how government regulation could enhance or kill some of these offerings. Uh, and, and a good example of that is you've got these centralized finance companies. BlockFi is one of them. They offer um, accounts where you can you can put money in, and they give you an interest rate. But they have specific language for them because they don't want to call it a savings account, and they don't want to call it a checking account because it's not those accounts. Well, the regulators grow very uncomfortable with that language and the fact that you're offering an interest because the way in which you're doing it is not the way banks traditionally do it. So you, you've got a lot of complexity there that has to be worked out. And I think the maximalist, the Bitcoin maximalist will look at that and say, ha ha, see, this, these are reasons that this stuff is not sustainable over the long term. And then, of course, the, 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 the non-maximalist, maybe someone who's more into Ethereum and other networks will say, well, wait a second. At some point, Bitcoin was viewed this way. <laughs> you know, this idea that it, is it really digital gold? Well, no, I don't think so. It's just this fictitious idea. So let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. So I, I'm with you. I think, I think there's, I think it's reasonable to explore um, to to explore these ideas, and I think uh, being a maximalist for the sake of being a maximalist uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of inherent value. I think we'd be better off if you know the Bitcoiners would talk to the Ethereum folks and figure out those use cases that each network is good for, and maybe start focusing on those use cases. So maybe you know Bitcoin is the best for money, Ethereum is the best for contracts, instead of just claiming that you know one is be all end all. Or maybe they get together and say, well, you know, we, we actually know enough now that we can build one blockchain that does everything well. Um, you <laughs> know, introduce so, fragility, man. No way. Yeah. No way. <laughs> so, um, well, it, you know, and, and part of me wonders if there's some sunk costs happening here where, you know, the Bitcoin folks are like, we put so much effort into Bitcoin, we're not going to change yeah. it. You know, and the Ethereum folks are, we put so much time and effort into Ethereum that we're not going to change it, even though right. there might be Based off their new knowledge and working together, there could be something better out there. But then there's the question of trade-offs, right? Is is are Bitcoin and Ethereum good enough at what they do to where these folks getting together and trying to develop something new is is a waste of time? Like the 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 marginal gain that we're going to get from something new is not going to be enough to warrant them taking time away from the current systems. It's I think those are great questions, and I'll add that. It is such a infinitely growing space, and there is just tremendous complexity. If you read the white papers from all top forty cryptos or top fifty cryptos, and then compare that to the roadmaps and actual development schedules, your, your mind you just can't digest all that information. It's just too much data. You need a team of folks doing that, and so people have developed heuristics to sort of focus on value and non-value in the space. And by people, I mean real sophisticated investors like VCs. And then you have the um, the retail investors that can get access to the stuff 
that are, you know, in some cases just doing <laughs> YOLO type of bets uh, versus investments. But it is it is a complex space. It does take a lot of brain power to to research it. And uh, for that reason alone, it, it, I think it can make it difficult. You talk about the sunk cost. Someone's invested all this time to learn how Ethereum works and how rollups are going to work off of this network, how layer twos are going to work, how you're going to how the security model is is actually going to work and, and evolve over time. How the staking model is going to work, and all of a sudden you go, well, by the way, there's these other chains. There's Cardano and there's Solana that also process uh, contracts. Have you looked into those? Because maybe they are better. And you're going, okay, what? Right? And not only that, I have equity or I have I have capital put into this network. I've invested in this network. I'm running nodes on this network. Now you want me to go look at this other one. So you, you do have a bit of that, um, the sunk cost issue that uh, people need to be aware of. And it's it's very easy for people that are focused on VC investments to sort of badmouth other projects when they they're, they're, they don't have the same skin in the game. Uh, I mean, they, they do from a money perspective, but it's unclear you know, are, they do, are they actually doing development? Are they out there actually um, investing and in, in trying to create the community? Right, um, and that, that's just not clear. So, so I think I think the point of this is, you know, tribalism can uh, perhaps it has some good values over time, but it can also just be very negative. Speaking to your tribe in a way that they don't want to hear has a cost to it, and so a lot of people won't do it. Uh, but it's also at times the right thing to say. Yeah. And I know we're over an hour here, but one thing I wanted to throw out there when you were talking about the more traditional companies operating in these spaces, I think it would behoove Bitcoin and Ethereum and those folks to focus a lot of resources on simplifying what they're doing to make it accessible to the average person. Because when you have this complex environment like this, that's going to invite government regulation. And we know through regulatory capture, right, the big players are going to essentially capture the regulations and write the regulations in a way that are going to benefit them and help keep out competition. I mean, it's not a guarantee, but, you know, if history is any past or if history is any indicator, right, that's what would happen. And here's the thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, if the Bitcoin folks come out with the simplest implementation of it tomorrow, right, the government's still going to want to regulate it. But you're at least taking away that complexity element yeah. as a justification for the government to regulate it, right? I mean, the government, you know, politicians, they, they're they focused on one thing, getting reelected, right? Brandon Wark taught us, taught us that way back in episode, I don't know, way, way, way long time ago, right? Politicians are good at one thing and they want one thing to get reelected. And secondly, right, politicians are good at trying to figure out ways to get money. The government doesn't produce anything, so these guys have to get creative in how they can get money out of the population. So if they can figure out a way to regulate Bitcoin, they will. And they no doubt will figure out a way to regulate it even more than they are now. And yeah. But we can at least take away this high-minded, well, we're just trying to protect the average person from this hugely complex and un, unintelligible system, right? We can at least th- take that away from them. So yeah, um, yeah the <laughs> moral of the story here, right, is complexity opens us up to regulation. Um, so um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, benefit to putting a lot of your resources into trying to simplify what you're doing and making it yeah. accessible to people. No, I, I think I agree. I'm going to go talk to Satoshi and Vitalik, um, let them know that I, I think they need to simplify what they're doing. Let's see. Let's see if we can get them to to agree. I I, I, I will say I, I completely agree. It is so funny because I have family members that are asking me questions and friends all the time about this space. And they go, wow, you just explained it so well. And I'm thinking, did, did I? Did I or did I just cut out all the the meaningful bits? You know, c- taking complex ideas, simplifying them, but without losing the real relevant information is not an easy task. It's computationally difficult on the brain. 
And so it, that's why sometimes it doesn't get done. There's other times when I, I do ask the question, other times when it's, is it a, um, a mountain we can climb? I don't know. Uh, with cryptology, I'm not sure I, I know the path to simplify, but I, I 100% agree with you. Do that or have someone else do it for you. And you don't want the regulators doing that. Right. And, you know, that's the core of the Feynman learning technique really is yep. if you can't explain it to a sixth grader, then you don't know it well enough. Um, so you right. need to go yeah, back right. and learn more about it. So, well, maybe we could do a whole episode on the Feynman learning technique. It's pretty interesting. So but I, I think uh, we should. I think I think we just found that the next episode we need to tackle. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, well, I know we've got a couple other little things on here, but they're nothing major. I think we hit the big ones. So are we ready to wrap this one up for today? I think we are. And uh, to everyone out there, appreciate you uh, going on this journey with us today. I know we talked about a lot of topics. They may seem disparate, but I think there's there's a lot of connective tissue here. Uh, what, one point that stood out to me as Scott was speaking was this idea of lattice work of mental models. You know, all the topics have connection points to to the other things that are in your life. It can be personal life, it can be uh, business oriented, but all of these ideas, the models, the points of communication, the considerations, they can all be traced back and have value to anything that you're looking at in your life. So hopefully you got something out of what we talked about today. Uh, I'll, I'll give one plug. If you haven't already, check out our How to Never Argue Again Unless You Want To book. It's it's brief. It's only about 20 pages, but it's chock full of great information for having more productive conversations with friends and family about any topic that can ever come to mind, including Trump, I promise. And so you can find that at mentallyinscripted.com. Um, on the right side, if you if you go to the, the webpage, uh, the homepage, um, there's, a, there's a link and it will take you right down to the, uh, to the website and to that, uh, uh, to that article, or sorry, the book. There we go. So yeah. thank you. Appreciate it, Scott. Anything before we wrap? Uh, no, just remember uh, you can get copies of the show notes out at mentallyunscripted.com as well. And going to get to work on getting some articles posted up out there. I think I'm going to move some of the stuff that I've written over on Strength and Reason, get those moved over there today or tomorrow. And I assume that we can put tags out there to kind of help people sort out the podcasts and the blog posts. I think so, yep. Whatnot. I think yeah, we so we'll, yep. Paul and I, we'll put on our thinking caps. We'll figure out how to use Substack and we'll make it easy for you guys to use. But yeah, yeah definitely go out there and um, share, share this podcast. If you get anything out of it, please share it. We're trying to grow this. Um, we're not making any money off of it right now. Nope. Hopefully that will change in the in the future so we can at least break even on this thing. So share it and please respond. Let us know if you've got any questions or anything. I'm going to work on getting uh, like an about me page put up now that Paul or Stefan, excuse me. <laughs> See, look, I'm, I'm still going. Hey, we're at the end. Yeah. We got it going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, get some information out there. Get us uh, some uh, email addresses so you guys can start emailing us directly and then comment on our posts. And yeah, share it. it that would be a huge help. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, be well, be good, be safe, be healthy. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode of Mentally Unscripted.